Turn with me, if you would, to Numbers 14. Numbers 14. We continue to work through this history of God's dealing with his people from Egypt to Canaan. Fairly often in the course of human events, we think we have perceived a defining moment. A moment after which nothing will ever be the same again. Well, I read this week that Hurricane Katrina is a defining moment for government leaders in the disaster area. I read that President's uh, nomination of John Roberts to the Supreme Court is a defining moment in his presidency. I, I read that the end of the Israeli occupation in Gaza is a defining moment in the Middle East. I, I guess we have lots of defining moments. Maybe they're not as significant as I thought. Oh, but this week I read of another defining moment, the one that we're going to read in our text. And here, 3,000 years later, it still remains a defining moment. Not only for Old Testament history, but for the people of God today. This text is worthy of our attention this morning. Numbers 14 is the other half of the story. We read chapter 13 last week and talked about it as uh, the people of Israel sent 12 spies up into the land of Canaan that God had promised them. And they came back bringing a report of its bounty and 10 of them bringing fearful reports. Chapter 14, we find what happened then. That night all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt, or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children would be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone. But the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt. How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with the plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, well then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought to these people up, out, up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people, and that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report will say about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the desert. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed. 
just as you have declared, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation in accordance with your great love. Forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you ask. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit since the Amalekites and Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In this desert your bodies will fall, every one of you twenty years old or more, who was counted in the census and who was grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land, I swore with uplifted hand, to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness, until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years... One year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole, this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land, who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. But Moses reported this to all the Israelites. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they went up toward the high country. We have sinned, they said. We will go up to the place the Lord promised. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up, because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there, because you have turned away from the Lord. He will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the high hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites, the Canaanites who lived in that hill country, came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. <coughs> this is a long account, lots of twists and turns, lots of details. We can't possibly examine all of them and apply all of them to ourselves but this morning, let me set before you two great truths that we dare not miss from this passage. The first is this. Don't shirk back. Trust and obey. Don't shirk back. Trust and obey. 
You know, watching a toddler throw a temper tantrum would almost be funny if it weren't so tragic. You've all seen it, lying on the floor, kicking his feet, screaming at the top of his lungs, I hate you, banging his head on the floor, crying uncontrollably, worked into a frenzy, and for what? Because his mom or dad made him do something that was good for him or refused him something that was bad for him? That's the Israelites we have described here. Crying all night, wishing they had died, longing for the days of slave in Egypt, accusing God of trying to kill their wives and children, plotting to find another leader who would take them back to Egypt. They threw a temper tantrum at Katie's Barnea. That's how Ron Allen describes it in his commentary. Let me quote, this was not a scene of passive, passive resignation, of silent ruin. We are to imagine the worst sort of rage, a picture of screaming, rending, throwing, cursing, anger, an intoxication of grief. The more the people wailed, the more excessive their words. The more the people cried, the more they outreached one another in protests of rage. This is the crowd psychology that leads to riots, lynchings, stormings, and rampages. And what was the problem again? Twelve spies had returned from Canaan with reports of the bounty they found there. A land flowing with milk and honey that God had said he would give them. But 10 of the spies also reported giants in the land and walled, fortified cities and impossible challenges. And suddenly the people of Israel, whom God had miraculously brought out of Egypt's slavery, faced the challenge of taking possession of the land for which the Lord had brought them out of Egypt. And when they looked at the realities reported there, their faith in God suddenly withered. Their fear soared out of control. Their self-pity and their grumbling overwhelmed them. And their self-protective resistance to God's commands, commands dug in its heels in open rebellion. They were not about to risk their lives entering the land of Canaan, no matter what God said. Oh, God's faithful servants tried to dissuade them. Moses and Aaron hearing them, Aaron and hearing them accusing God, prostrated themselves on the ground in front of these people, humbled themselves before the Lord, probably expecting God's judgment to fall. Caleb and Joshua, the two faithful, faithful spies, engaged in a tug of war, trying to convince these people what one writer calls the terrified ten versus the trusting two. They argued the case for trusting God and obeying the Lord. They reminded the people that the land they had seen was exceedingly good, just like God said. They contended accurately that what mattered was not the size of the enemy, but whether God was with them. They explained to the people that God had removed the protection of these people, that his people could easily defeat the Canaanites. And in their grief, Joshua and Caleb ripped their clothes in a sign of mourning, not mourning for dead relatives, but mourning for the death of faith and hope in the community. But the Israelites, seized with unbelieving fear, 
were not about to listen. The unbelieving mob made plans to stone Caleb and Joshua, even as they planned to choose a new leader to replace Moses, who would take them back to the land of Egypt. This was a defining moment in Israel's history. God was not amused by this temper tantrum. This was blatant defiance of the Lord. Here they violated the covenant he had made with them, which they had promised to obey. Here they demonstrated both a lack of faith and a refusal to obey. And of course those two, faith and obedience, are closely related. Now we separate them out when we're talking about salvation. We separate faith from works, trusting from obeying, to, for the sake of teaching that our salvation is all of grace received by faith. It's not a combination of faith and works. Oh, but in the dynamic of our living, you cannot separate faith from obedience. If we believe God's promises and his warnings, we will do what he says. And if we refuse to do what he says, we refuse to advance on his promises, we refuse to obey his commands, then whatever faith we say we have is self-delusion. This was a watershed event in Israel's history. The day God's people shirked back, refusing to trust and obey the Lord. Now we might imagine that, well, in the end it all turned out all right. They came to their senses and said they're sorry. And the Lord renegotiated his plans and didn't ask so much of them and, and uh, uh, gave them an easier way and they all live happily ever after. That's how we like to tell stories, isn't it? That's not what happened. Here it is recorded that God brought judgment on his own people. Right in the middle of their hysteria, the glory of the Lord appeared. We're not told what form that glory took, but Moses and Aaron lying face down on the ground seemed to anticipate it. And when the Lord appeared, he spoke and he was incensed at what he had heard. Verse 11, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of the miraculous signs I performed among them. In verse 26, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard their complaint. These grumbling Israelites. And so the Lord pronounced judgment. As surely as I live, declares the Lord. I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In the desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you 20 years old or more who was counted in the census and has grumbled against the Lord, not one of you will enter the land I swore to give you except Caleb and Joshua. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days, you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins, and you will know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. 
they will meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. Why? Because they shirked back, refused to trust and obey. Oh, at the end of this chapter, they realized they had done wrong. So they said, oh, we're going after all. Moses said, no, that's disobedience now. The Lord told you not to go now. You're going to be defeated. The Lord's not going with you. Oh, yeah, we're going anyway. And with the same disregard for the Lord's commands and the same presumption that they could trust themselves and refusal to trust the Lord, they went and they got beat back and ran for their lives all the way to Hormah. God had declared that they would not enter the promised land, and he meant what he said. For the next 40 years, this whole generation, some 600,000 of them, died. One after another, after another, after another, after another, after another. They did nothing but funerals for 40 years, until every last one of them was gone. Except Joshua and Caleb. For they would not trust God. They would not obey his word. They shirked back in unbelief and disobedience in the greatest defining moment of their lives. Folks, this is not just a lesson in Jewish history. The Apostle Paul writes of this event and he says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. But the Lord doesn't just leave it in a general way there that these things apply to you. In the book of Hebrews, this defining event becomes the basis for much of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 3 and 4, the Holy Spirit explains that the land of Canaan represented God's rest, which had been lost to mankind in the fall. But they refused to enter God's rest, and God swore they will never enter, and they never did. But now, Hebrews explains, that rest has come to fulfillment in the salvation which Jesus brings by his death and resurrection. And so once again, we are called, when we hear the gospel, to, to, to trust and obey, to rise up and follow Christ. Though it may look dangerous and it may look impossible, though it requires us to die to self and take up the cross. But this is the exhortation of Hebrews 3 and 4. Let's, let me read some of it. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message we heard was of, the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. In this day, you see, when the gospel is preached, 
We are to learn from their mistake. Don't back off. Trust and obey the Lord Jesus, for in him and in him alone we will find rest for our souls. They didn't trust, and they did not enter the rest. Over then in the chapter 6 of Hebrews, in the same context, the warning gets even stronger. In that passage, God addresses people in the Christian community who, like Israel, had enjoyed many of God's great blessings. But when things got difficult, when their faith began to cost them something, they were tempted to turn away, to back off, to abandon Christ. And here's a warning against disobedience and unbelief among God's people is jarring. Listen to it. It is impossible for those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Once again, this warning against the backdrop of Israel's experience in Kadesh. Don't turn away. Don't back off. Persevere in trusting and obeying the Lord Jesus. Folks, we live in a day of grace abuse. We have this idea that it doesn't matter what we do. Whether we faithfully trust God and do what he says, even when things get tough, or cut and run and take the easy way out, even if it means denying the Lord. We tend to glibly assume it will be all right, God will forgive, and and, uh, it'll be no big deal. And I certainly for one moment would not diminish the grace of God. God's mercy in Jesus to undeserving sinners is all we have. But if we realize how desperate our situation really is without Christ, when the chips are down, even when it's tough, we will not dare to abandon him. For we have nowhere to go. Lest we find ourselves in Israel's shoes. There at the door the promised land with it now slammed to us. Oh, but you see, those who trust Jesus truly will not turn away. We're not just hanging on by our fingernails, hoping to come with enough enough strength to last another day. We have a strong Savior who holds on to us. But with childlike faith, we trust him. We don't dare abandon him. Later in the book of Hebrews, challenges us with more encouraging words. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised for. In just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we're not of those 
who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. That's the first great lesson of this text. In the day of trial, in the day of testing, don't shirk back, don't turn away. Trust and obey. That's the main point. There's a second point that we need to consider, and that's this. God's plan, God's plans will prevail with or without you. God's plans will prevail with or without you. A famous person once wrote, one's philosophy is not best expressed in words. It is expressed in the choices one makes. In the long run, we shape our lives and we shape ourselves. The process never ends until we die and the choices we make are ultimately our responsibility. There's a lot of truth in that. Indeed, what we've learned so far from this text seems to uphold those words. But there's a danger. For the more we emphasize the importance of our personal choices and how we determine our lives by our choices, the easier it is to begin to ignore God's sovereign design. And before long, people begin to think that God is at the mercy of my choices. In fact, lots of people would openly defend such a view. God's freedom to do his will is dependent upon what people decide. Without us giving the word, God's paralyzed. Well, in this text, we learn that quite the opposite is true. God's plans will prevail no matter what you do. In this passage, which is so filled with the consequences of Israel's choices, there is at the same time running through this passage a presumption of God's sovereignty. God promised this land to Abraham and the patriarchs. God reiterated that promise to Moses and to the people of Israel. And God fully intends to fulfill his promises and bring his people into Canaan, the symbol of his eternal rest. God is in control and no one will thwart his plans. Now we see that presumption played out in several little ways as we go through this narrative. First of all, we see it played out in the in the com God's comments to Moses. In verse 12, the Lord appears to Moses. He's angry in Israel. And, and he says to Moses, I will strike them down and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Now, this is not what Moses wants. In fact, he prays that the Lord would do otherwise, and, and, and God certainly does not do this. But the point is nonetheless made. God has lots of options. Raising up descendants of Moses, getting rid of all of these people, and starting over with Moses would still fulfill the promises he made to Abraham. It would still fulfill the promises he made to, to Moses. It would still fulfill the purposes for which brought them out of Egypt. And throughout the ages, God's people would honor him for his faithfulness. God does not need these people. 
God's plans will prevail no matter what they do. We see a second hint of that truth in our text when uh, Moses prays concerning God's glory. Moses intercedes for the disobedient people and he does so on the basis of several things. And one of his arguments is that God cannot destroy these people because his own honor is at stake. Look at verse 15 and 16. Moses is praying, if you put these people to death, the nations who've heard this report about you will say the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised on oath. So he slaughtered them into the desert. Moses is concerned for God's reputation. That's nice of him to be concerned about that. God's glory will be tainted if you destroy these people, Moses says. Well, God certainly listens to Moses' prayer, and God certainly shows mercy to these disobedient people, these unbelieving people, but God rejects Moses' argument about his own honor. Look down in verse 20. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you ask. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of these people who saw my glory and turned away will enter my promised land. You see, God is certainly merciful. He certainly hears and answers Moses' prayer, but God's glory is not up for grabs here. The whole earth is filled with God's glory, and no one can change that. One writer says the Lord's kabod, that's the word for glory, is inviolable. In order to destroy it, the whole earth would have to be destroyed. The Lord's glory fills the whole earth so that there is no room for anyone else, either God nor man. God's glory, his reputation, his honor is not held captive to sinful men. In fact, God is glorified even in his condemnation of the wicked. God's plans prevail, no matter what anybody does. Then there's a third place that we see that same thing in this text. And this is the most powerful way that we see God working his sovereign plans. That is in the sentence that he imposed on this unbelieving and disobedient people. This is really, I think, the most interesting part of the text. For there's such irony in how God deals with his people. They wanted to turn around and head back to Egypt. And God said, okay, you want to turn around and head back to Egypt? Moses, tomorrow, turn them all around and head them back toward the Red Sea. That's what you want. That's what you get. Though they wouldn't get to Egypt, they would wander for 40 years in the desert between. They said, oh, we wish we had just died in the wilderness. God said, you wanted to die in the wilderness? Okay, you will die in the wilderness. And they did. Oh, but most importantly, they said, God just brought us here to kill our children. Ooh. If what we said and did this morning in regard to little Jesse is true, that's an awesome thing to say. Listen to Ron Allen. He writes, God's sharpest rebuke of his errant people comes in response to their charge that he wanted to kill their children. The attacks on his grace 
and the rebuffs of his mercy he will tolerate. The forgetfulness of his power, the ignoring of his acts of deliverance, he will set aside. But there is one thing that God simply will not tolerate, the accusation that he had brought the people into the desert with the intent that he might thereby destroy their children, that they would die in the desert or be taken as plunder by victorious enemies. So a further element in the comic justice of this section is the notice that the children would be the only ones who actually would enter and enjoy the land. Folks, God cared more about their children than they did. He cares more about your children than you do. These parents would cause their children to suffer for 40 years until they themselves have died off in the wilderness. But one day God would bring those children into Canaan, not to kill them, but to give them his inheritance. And when he did, all God's promises would be fulfilled in spite of their parents' terrible unbelief. His promises to Abraham would be fulfilled. These are the children of Abraham. His promise to Moses and to their parents would be fulfilled. These are the children of Israel. His, and the world would know that God's plans will prevail no matter what anybody does. And that's still true today. It's still true for you. It's still true for me. God is sovereign over all things. He calls us to make choices. He holds us accountable for our actions. But he is not at our mercy. He is not even inconvenienced by our sinfulness. And just knowing that ought to affect the choices we make. If we stand against him, we will lose. If we fail to trust him and obey his call, he'll get somebody else. But his plans will not fail, only ours will. And like Israel, we will wish we had trusted him enough to do what he said, no matter how scary it was. For God's plans will prevail with or without you. In the life of Israel, the events at Kadesh Barnea were truly a defining moment. And in our lives, just learning about these events introduces us to some defining moments for us. Certainly when we first hear the gospel, and we're called to turn away from our sin and trust and follow Jesus. It's a defining moment. For life will never be the same. Either we will trust him or we will perish. Oh, but not just that moment. Every time we have held before us the promises of God with all of their frightening implications for our lives, over against the easy but deadly way of of unbelief which tempts us to turn away. Every time we face that, it's a defining moment. 
For those moments, though we may face them quietly in the struggles of our own hearts where nobody knows, they do define our lives. There we stand where Israel stood on the edge of the promised land with God's wonderful promises for those who trust and obey, but also at the crossroads of disaster for disobedience and unbelief. There what Israel learned too late we have the opportunity to learn in time to act faithfully. And what is it that we learn? Don't shirk back. Don't turn away. Trust and obey. For God's plans will succeed. With or without you. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I believe this is the most frightening text I know. For here you don't tell the pagans that If they don't turn to you, they'll be lost. Here you tell me and these dear people of yours that we never outgrow the necessity of repentance and faith that yields obedience. Oh Lord, we would despair at this. For who can possibly hold on good enough? We can't. Hold on to us, Lord, we pray. Thank you for your promises that no one can pluck us out of your hands. Thank you that you don't save us because of the great mass of our great works. But you save those who simply, with childlike faith, trust Jesus. But forbid that we should deceive ourselves into thinking that we can trust you and turn away at the same time. Hold us, Lord, by your grace. For Jesus' sake, amen.